Miko Hypnin is the CRO of WithSecure and a Principal Research Officer at FSecure. In this interview with our host, Jordi Mon, he discusses the eventful and rocky early start of his software engineering career, hybrid warfare, reverse engineering, recent exploits like Log4Shell and Heartbleed, and more. This episode is packed with valuable career and life lessons on dealing with the unexpected, as well as fascinating stories from the frontiers of cybersecurity and geopolitics, many of which are discussed in more depth in Miko's recent book, If It's Smart, It's Vulnerable. Miko Hippanen, welcome to the Software Engineering Daily Podcast. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. I'm not entirely sure, almost, but almost 100% if this will be the first episode that is uh, shared with the Software Engineering Daily Podcast community that I'm the host of. But if so, uh, I'm quite happy that this is the case because, uh, well, despite Miko, Miko being kind of a knotball, not, not, a, not completely infrequent, but not the, the archetypical uh, interviewee or guest of, of this podcast, which usually is software engineers, founders, developers. I have tons of respect for him. And uh, in an old-fashioned way, I guess, uh, me and many others consider him a public intellectual figure, which is something that unfortunately is in decline uh, these days. Uh, so it's, for me, a great debut. And if I may so, actually kind of recursive one, because uh, although the background, for those of you who are watching this in YouTube, doesn't say much. In fact, this is a classroom. Uh, and by the way, uh, the, uh, I'm sharing the network uh, name and the password with the security professional. So terrible best practice there, or actually worst practice. Um, but I'm in Madrid, in not sunny Madrid today in Spain, and I'm at an event called TarugoConf, a huge technology and entrepreneurship event here in, in Spain, but that is hosted in La Nave, which means the spaceship. And this is the actu actually the place in which I saw Mikko, our current guest today, uh, for the first time in a talk... Uh, uh, yeah, years ago. Do you remember that, Miko? Faintly. I, I do a lot of public speaking and I've done a lot of talks in Spain over the years, but I do believe I was speaking about um, the most active cybercrime gangs at the time and the ways they were making money, including denial of service for higher services in which they launch attacks against online stores and then they demand payments in order to stop the attacks. I think that's the one I did over there. I'm fairly sure. I mean, my takeaway, I've also got, I mean, I don't do public speaking and travel that much. Uh, by the way, you must have a frequent flyer uh, tier status there that is golden uh, with all the travel that you do. I think in yes, the book you mentioned, <laughs> I think in the book, didn't you mention that you are like, you travel like 140 days a year? 140 flights a year is what I peaked oh, at oh, before, exactly. before the pandemic, but uh, I'm glad to report I'm not back to those levels. Actually, I, I hope I'll never reach those levels again. It's not healthy. Yes, it's, it's, it's not good for you. It's not good for the planet. You're absolutely right. Uh, I'm, happy. I'm happy for you too. Uh, so, well, let me introduce the guest. Uh, for the small segment of you uh, that don't know Mikko, uh, Mikko's the CRO, that will, uh, the acronym is Chief Research Officer of WithSecure, and it's the Principal Research Officer at FSecure. Uh, both companies were previous, uh, called previously FSecure before WithSecure, 
was recently, I think months ago, I believe, uh, mm -hmm. spun off from, from F-Secure. And both companies, when they were before being called F-Secure, were known as data fellows. That is a data point that, are, that you should keep in mind because it's going to be relevant uh, down the line. So uh, Miko has just published uh, in Wiley a book that is titled, and I'm showing on screen now, If It's Smart, It's Vulnerable, uh, which is wittingly a shorter version of Hibbertin's Law, um, which is the uh, elaborate version is whenever an appliance is described as smart, it's vulnerable. Uh, and uh, this is a topic in which, by the way, Miko has, uh, with his colleague or friend or uh, a guy called Linus Nyman, has published research uh, back in 2017. The book, which we are going to talk about, or the topics described in the book, is fantastic. It's a generalistic approach to the topics that are most, uh, of most interest to Miko throughout his career. So in the internet, the principles of freedom and respect that uh, are embedded in its foundation and the people that were behind it, uh, and also the current threat to those right now. Uh, geopolitics, cyber war, or hybrid war, which was actually, I think, the topic of the talk that you gave here, apart from the specifics that you mentioned. Nation, nation states doing hybrid war, and many, many more things. I mean, it, it, it's, 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 it condenses so many things in short episodes that, again, are very approachable, and it's just a fantastic and easy read. Uh, so it's the perfect excuse for me to meet him and dive deeper, a bit more into the software engineering side of things that, uh, that yeah, that's what we will do in a minute. Um, so... It has been in the back of my mind ever since I read the book in September, Miko, um, that it might have been me who actually asked you about how you landed your second job. And I'm quoting their second job. Because you had a major fiasco uh, with your first client at Data Fellows, uh, the first company in which Miko worked, which is actually the company at, work, at which you worked. So can you... Can you can you remember if it actually was me who actually uh, mm -hmm. asked you about it? And then just uh, describe, if you wish, uh, the, the, the major incident. Yeah, sure. That's actually, I, I have to double check. I, I actually, I think you're right. It's, it's you who asked me about how did I ever get another job in the industry. And this was a, a, in response to a, a tweet that I made about failures that people have experienced in their professional life. And, and this was very early in my career. I was a nervous 21-year-old coder building database systems for, for, for Data Fellows, which, is, which was a startup at the time. I had just joined the company. And I had this big client and a big project building a product information database for a factory, which was building porcelain, like, like a ta uh, tables of porcelain, like cups and mugs and things like that. When I joined the project, the previous lead developer had just left. The project was in shambles. It was over budget, uh, behind schedule. I tried catching up, and uh, the CIO of the company wasn't having any of it. He was really unhappy with us, with me, with the status of the project, and for a very good reason, really. Anyway, it was my first big project, so I was stumbling around, tried to get things done, and, and uh, eventually the CIO got fed up, and he said, okay, fine, Mikko, you come over tomorrow, and you'll do a demo, and you'll show where we are. So I did what a 21-year-old coder does. I pulled an all-nighter. I tried like tying all the loose ends, and I was pretty happy with the end result. I actually had a working database on the front end running on Windows 3.0, which was some of the, the listeners might, might remember that. 
And that's remarkable because Windows 3.0 didn't yet support internet. There was no TCP IP stack. So um, we were connecting to a local area network, but no internet connectivity at the time. Nevertheless, the, the, the database worked, the front end worked. I finished the demo. I had a meeting scheduled, I believe, at noon. I put my papers in my briefcase, hopped on a tram, and did the ride across the city of Helsinki, which is where I live, to the client. The client, the CIO, is waiting in a big meeting room with his people. I get in, I open up my briefcase, and I realize that I've left the floppy behind me because this is still floppy times, and the floppy which had the program was still sitting inside the floppy drive back at the office, and the CIO was having none of that. He was confident I was bluffing that, you know, the project is nowhere. I have no demo. I'm just trying to buy more time. And I was trying to explain, no, 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 I actually have it. I just left it behind me. And he said, okay, fine. We'll wait. We'll wait here in the meeting room. You go and get the floppy and you do the demo right now. And I said, sure, fine, I'll get it. But it's going to take a while because I have to take the tram ride across the city and come back across the city. And then he handed me his car keys. You take my car and get the goddamn floppy. I go out, I find his car, which is a brand new Saab 9000 Turbo. And me, the nervous 21-year-old, get on the roads of Helsinki and I crash his car. <laughs> and that's the story. And that's the story that you replied to that, holy hell, Mikko, how did I you ever so. get another job in the industry? <laughs> so... Uh, I, I, again, I don't want to focus only on the mess-ups of your career, which I, I, I presume there are very few, but you did actually take down the uh, Data Fellows website. Uh, my question is, was that a Git mess-up? Did, uh, did you mess up with Git? Or, no, or no. This was way, way before Git was invented by Linus Torvalds. Um, at the time, we were maintaining our website by mounting the Unix share over PCT, PCTCP, um, to our, our MS-DOS computers. And we were using both symbolic and hard links on the NFS file system, and PCTCP didn't correctly tell the difference between these types of links. So I, I actually was trying to delete a temp folder, but there was a symbolic link in the temp folder into the HTML docs folder, which then recursively deleted everything on our website as well. And of course, we had no backup, so I ended up going... I had to go to our CEO and confess that, you know, I've deleted our website and we have no backup. We have to recreate everything. But this was, you know, a very early time. There were much less people surfing the web at the time. So it wasn't as big of a problem as it would be today. Yeah. I presume the traffic was not huge, right? So last sort of like fun fact uh, from the book, there's plenty. Uh, you mentioned that, you mentioned Linus in, in, in praise, in awe, because obviously he's one of the most relevant persons on earth. And in the case of Finland, obviously one of the most person, uh, relevant Finns uh, in the history of Finland. Uh, you mentioned actually that there's uh, two other Finns that have given a TED talk. I can think of a second one. I think I probably have him in, in front of me, have him in front of me, but I, I without looking up, but this information anywhere, I can't think of the third one. I have a wild guess, but I won't even say, I mean, unless, who's, are you, are you willing to tell us? Or sure, should sure. We look yeah, at I was the first Finnish person to be doing a real TED talk and real TED event. Um, that was in 2011. And then two or three years later, Linus Torvalds did a TED talk. And then maybe two years later, 
um, a um, programmer and designer called Carolina Corpo. She's the game designer for Colossal Order City Design Game that some of the listeners might know. She's done a TED Talk. So there's three Finns who've done a TED Talk, and uh, I was the first one. So Mikko and his company produced a documentary about this piece of malware, malware called Brain. Uh, like the organ in, within in our heads, uh, and it um, arguably the first piece of malware, the, the first virus, uh, uh, digital virus in in the world. Um, so most likely, you know, this is in itself interesting to our audience. But what most people will know is that you actually um, decompiled brain. Mm-hmm. So I know, again, this is probably ages ago, but can you walk us through how that process looks like for for brain specifically or in general? Sure. So my reverse engineering skills come from from assembly programmer background. I've written a lot of programs, low-level programs in assembler, um, which is very handy when you need to be able to then reverse engineer other people's programs. And and when I started doing malware analysis, Professionally, um, um, the very first malware I analyzed and actually named is is a piece of malware called Omega, which is completely unremarkable in every other way. That it, except it's it's important for me. I, it was in September 1991 when I found this virus and spent a week uh, trying to figure out how it worked. And and that, the, with the very first reverse engineering for the first malware sample, I actually printed out the code and I had this like dozens of pages uh, on the floor as I was trying to figure out the flow of the code and how it loops and these interrupts that it's calling, what do they actually do and all that. And in the end, I did figure it out. And and that was in late 1991. And then I realized that, you know, I, I want to do this. I want to be better in this. I want to understand all the viruses we have. And at the time, there were around 200 viruses in the whole world. That's it. So I collected samples of them all. I, I reached out to my colleagues in companies like IBM and McAfee, which were doing malware analysis at the time. And I collected all the 200, and I reverse engineered every single one of them to understand the different techniques that we see, saw, saw in viruses at the time. And this is all, now we're, we're speaking about PC viruses, and this is 1991, so it's MS-DOS-based viruses. Now, I have to be clear here, brain is the first PC virus. There actually were a couple of viruses before that running on 8-bit home computers, like Apple II. But you know, PC viruses are important because we're still fighting PC viruses today. I mean, brain.a was the very first PC virus, and that was from 1986. And it was one of those 200 viruses I, I reverse engineered back then in 1991-1992 to, to understand how all the viruses we knew worked. So did you use uh, pen and paper for, uh, to, de- to actually understand the assembly code of uh, Brain.A? Well, when I was going through these earlier samples of malware, I, I started getting better tools. First of all, the most important thing is that I actually got a spare computer I could infect and actually run the malware and see what it does, which wasn't obvious at the time. This is way, way before virtualization or virtual machines, so we were actually working on real computers. Well, at the time, I was the only one doing malware research at the computer company, so I was the only guy doing any of this. And I had early tools, um, very important, debug.com, which was part of the operating system, part of MS-DOS. I was using debug to actually step through the code as much as you could. 
but many malware, even the, many of those early malware samples at the time had tricks which made it hard to use debug when, when they were using self-modifying code or using obfuscation or layers of encryption. For that, I was using tools like Turbo Debugger, so I would actually run the code in a debugger and then you know break hit a breakpoint and you know dump the memory and see what's happening. And I also remember a tool from a company called V Communications, which was called Sourcer. And the whole idea for the tool is that it turns binaries back into source code and, and actually was surprisingly effective on many of the early viruses. But you know, it, it was still very manual work, and mostly it's just you know, looking at the code and trying to figure out what it's trying to do. Nice. Oh, my God. I didn't know about all those tools. And I'm surprised by the last one. Yeah. Oh and also, God. there's a, there's, there was a very important some... reference. Um, all these early viruses that I was looking at were MS-DOS viruses. And in MS-DOS, the way you call functions is, is that you call interrupts. And there were tons and tons of documented and undocumented interrupts, basically functions provided by MS-DOS, the operating system, or by third-party solutions programs you were running on your system. And Ralph Brown was the producer of the seminal interrupt list text file, which was like 200 pages long and, and referenced every single interrupt that you would call interrupt 21 with this hex value in, in register AH, and it would explain exactly what that would do. And many of these were completely undocumented, things that were done by memory managers or other tools that people were running. So it was really crucial to have a reference. So there are two vulnerabilities that are more modern than Brain uh, that ha have hit the cloud-native uh, world uh, strongly, and by extension, the world, because everything almost... Many things run, run in the cloud, right? So I'm thinking of Lock for Shell and the OpenSSL uh, Heartbleed. Uh, both solved. Doesn't mean that everyone has patched, but both have patches available, generally available. So ideally, these should not be a problem anymore. But in general, software supply chain attacks are, are on the rise. In fact, just before jumping into this conversation, I was reading, I can't remember the... Uh, media outlet, but I think there, there's been a scan through all the open source packages out there, and 88k, 88,000 of the most used ones actually have been found uh, containing vulnerabilities. So you're downloading your package from NPM, and it has, well, I don't know, some, some, some piece of malware. Um, so there's been efforts from mostly from the US government, but the EU, the UK have started considering this as a national priority. In fact, the White House has backed initiatives to secure software development within the federal government. And also in September 22nd, so just a, a month ago, today is the, uh, we're recording this on the 21st of October, the White House introduced the Securing Open Source Software Act, uh, which acknowledges, among other things, the open source software, uh, that open source software is key to any software supply chain. And also that attacks that I mentioned a minute ago present, and I quote, present a serious threat to federal systems and critical infrastructure companies, including banks, hospitals, and utilities that Americans rely on each and every day for essential services. Uh, this is, of course, applicable to any country because that infrastructure that I just described is very well described in your book. Uh, so what can we do about it, uh, Mikko? This is mm -hmm. a tough question, but... What, how does that look like? And if you have any any 
suggestions on how to tackle yeah it is one of the hardest problems we have to solve because of course open source has completely changed the world open source is the reason why we have so many great solutions tools operating systems applications available to us and any large project of course contains open source uses open source tools or, or uses open source code now the risks for using code written by others there's there's, there's two ways you can get burned by it um Number one, there's a vulnerability in the code, which simply means there's an innocent mistake. The programmer made a mistake by accident because we are all humans, we make mistakes. And when programmers make mistakes, they create bugs. And when you have bugs in interconnected systems, they easily become exploitable vulnerabilities. And then we have the other problem, which is trojanized source code. And you, you, you yourself mentioned that you, know, you might be downloading malware when you download code written by others. That also happens sometimes. Of course, it's much more common that it's just a mistake and it's just a vulnerability by accident. But trojanized containers, trojanized source code uh, absolutely happens. And we also see cases where projects get abandoned and are taken over by malicious persons or people buy open source projects only for the purpose of trojanizing them. If there's a large audience uh, for a piece of code and it's no longer being maintained, then someone else might be taking it over for the sole purpose of, of trojanizing it and using it as a way in to large amounts of computers. Once you gain access to a large amount of computers, you can easily convert them into money by stealing information, stealing credentials, or simply using the power of the machines that you're able to run on. One mechanism which power is turned into money is, is with malicious mining, cryptocurrencies, and the other one is denial-of-service botnets. So you launch attacks against sites and demand money for the attacks to stop. And this isn't easy to solve because there's so much code and, and we all rely on these, well, hobbyist projects. You look at the open source projects that we all rely on and they are surprisingly, they're run by surprisingly small teams. And I think the best example of this is, is, is the Heartbleed you mentioned yourself. Um, I actually went back to see, yeah. the, to find the exact commit that committed the bug which created the Heartbleed vulnerability in the OpenSSL encryption uh, library, which mm. basically exposed the mm. raw memory of the servers which were using this, this encryption library, which was and is very, very common. The commit was done by one of the four or five main developers of OpenSSL on New Year's Eve, half past nine or half past ten in the evening. Who writes SSL libraries on New Year's Eve after 10 p.m.? Well, you know, these guys did. That, that, that's, that, I think it's a great example on how these are not professional projects. These are hobby projects. Someone is coding this on New Year's Eve and then the whole world uses it. And, and literally, the whole world was running OpenSSL. It was, running, it was used by Google and Microsoft. It was used by yeah. all car manufacturers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Most cars run OpenSSL. Code which was committed on New Year's Eve, half past 10 in the evening. So, so it's a tough problem. And, and of course, the solution is more resources yeah. to, to audit the code that we all use, which requires money. Now... Both OpenSSL, Heartbleed, and the Log4j, which you mentioned, have been big problems which have created a lot of attention to this problem. So the situation actually is now much better. Big companies, I mentioned Google and Microsoft also, Apple and, and Meta, 
um, they've invested a lot of money into projects which go through op- large, important open source projects and audit them, try to find vulnerabilities and get them fixed, which makes all of us safer. And, and that is great. And also the uh, Open Source Software Act, which you mentioned from US government, which directly assigns more resources um, to do this kind of work is exactly the right move. And I'm, I'm really glad to see that uh, CISA, the US uh, infrastructure cyber what is CISA abbreviated from? United States Infrastructure Agency. Um, they are on, 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 on this because that's one of the more agile U.S. governmental agencies and they're focused exactly on cybersecurity. Hopefully, whatever the solution, the outcome of it, or, or, or them if they're multiple, is that the number of committers, of contributors, maintainers of critical projects like OpenSSL broadens uh, it's, it's, it, the, more maintainers are, you know, are welcome to the project, and also they are not probably under pressure to be committing at midnight, uh, close to midnight or 10 p.m. of New Year's Eve, right? They've got a, you know, a proper support for them to be committing on a Monday, fourth of November, 9 a.m. Right? Which we like. And also, very probably... importantly, going back to the old code and auditing the things which have been written a long, long time ago, because there's very little incentive for anyone else to do that. You, it's not really a fun hobby project to go back and audit, you know, thousands of lines of old code. Someone has to be paid to do that, and that's exactly what gets done with projects like these. So going back a bit again, I'm jumping in time. One of the attacks that I enjoyed most of your book is the one that is described in the episode called The Heist, and that involves an IBM mainframe. Uh, it's a operator system, which is called ZOS. Uh, and, um, and uh, yeah, so can you explain what happened? Sure, at, sure. Uh, the heist? I'm uh, actually telling uh, how a friend of mine, a colleague of mine, Tom, Tom Van de Veel, who actually works for us as a consultant, how he was going through an assignment. And Tom is a pen tester, so he's, he, he gets paid to break into services do penetration testing, both virtual or like systems testing, but also physical testing. So you can hire him or other physical pen testers that we have to break into places. And this was a bank. Can I can I interrupt you there? Does he not does he not contribute to a blog from from your company that's really interesting about yes, pen testing? Yes, yes, he does. Yes, we have a have a have a series of blogs on WitSecure website, and he's one of the authors writing stories about how the life of a pen tester looks like. And it's, it's, it's pretty exciting because you get to break things and you get to go into places you're not supposed to go. And that's exactly what happens in this case because the bank in question was hiring us to see if we could find a way to break into their mainframe system. And, and, and well, we did a series of different steps to gain, gain credentials, which we did. Uh, we got the credentials for the system, but we couldn't find a way to use the credentials. Um, Tom was investigating the case and he finally realized that the, the mainframe is only accessible from one building. Um, you have to enter a building to have an IP range which would allow you to gain access to the system. So he figured out a way to get into the building by posing as someone else, escaping the event that he was supposed to be visiting in. And then he was roaming the halls of this bank. He was dressed to look like anyone else. He was carrying a briefcase, had a tie on him. Nobody really asked anything about him. He sat down at a cubicle and started to work. If, if you think about this, you walk by someone working at his cubicle, he's dressed in a suit and he seems very busy. It's unlikely 
you're going to go and ask who he actually is, even though you've never seen him before at the office, especially if it's a big bank like this was. So he finishes the project. He finds the IP address for the, for the server. He logs in with the stolen credentials and bingo, we're in. However, then he pings the server and realizes the ping comes back in 10 milliseconds. So he realizes that, you know, it's, it's, he's close. He's physically close to the server. It's somewhere here. And it would be kind of cool to actually find the server and maybe take a selfie with the server. This was not part of the assignment. So he, he was just doing it for giggles. So he starts roaming the, the, the halls again, uh, going through doors, um, which, as Tom explained to me, you don't do by trying to be really sneaky about it. No, no, you, you start chatting up with people as they're walking towards the doors you want to go through. Hey, I haven't seen you in actually two years. Yeah, yeah. Act, 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 act normal. Walk with purpose. And, and you know, go. The one way we used to get into buildings is to go have a cigarette outside the building with other smokers and start chatting about the TV shows yesterday and then walk in with them. Um, nevertheless, he, he very successfully goes down multiple floors in the building. He's aiming for the basement because he's certain that the mainframe is in the basement when disaster strikes because the original host who he bluffed to get into the building by chance walks up to him in the corridor. Uh, he sees the host, he tries to escape, but he spots him and he's very confused that hey, how, how can you be here? Like I saw you in another meeting hours ago. You're not supposed to be here. This is a security breach. I have to now escort you to, to our front desk and you will be kicked out. All right, Tom accepts his faith. He's standing with his host, waiting for the elevator to go back to the front desk when he realizes to, that he might as well come clean. So he tells his host that, you know what, I lied to you. Um, I'm actually, you know, not who I told you I was. I'm actually working for a company called WitSecure. I'm actually a pen tester. I'm here to do a penetration test of your organization. And the host is like, uh-huh, interesting. All right, well, in that case, have a nice day. And he leaves him there by the elevator and walks away. So he almost did the right thing, but then he failed at the very last step. Because, of course, you're not supposed to leave the pentester roaming the corridor. So then Tom continued on. Finally, he was able to get into the basement. He found the mainframe, and he took a selfie with the mainframe. I've seen the selfie, and he attached the picture to his report that he filed. Nice. Um, so what about Stuxnet? Stuxnet. Uh, I know this is a completely different piece of malware. I mean, you, you weren't describing malware now, but Stuxnet was... If I'm not wrong, designed by, I mean, it's, I guess it's difficult to attribute who did it, but I think it's generally accepted that it was designed by the Israeli government to um, prevent the Iranian government from actually being able to um, develop um, key capabilities of the uh, nuclear program. Uh, is that a, a fair statement of what that right. was? Okay. So how, how did... How did the software actually work? Can you, did you ever have access to it or uh, a, a elaborate description of it? What, what did the software actually do? Not necessarily the operation to introduce it. So the opposite of a pen tester, I guess. Well, actually, no, a pen you know, an Israeli pen, pen tester, I guess. But what did the software, what was this software designed for and what did it actually do? Because I believe successful. I've actually met some of the developers of, of Stuxnet face-to-face. -face. In the book, I tell a story about me visiting um, National Security Agency in the United States, in Fort Meade, Maryland, uh, 
around 2007 or so for a completely unrelated meeting. But then three years later in 2010, when we found Stuxnet, um, which was actually found by a Belarusian cybersecurity company from systems in Iran, then we slowly but surely realized that, you know, this is not normal malware. This is nation state malware. And this is targeting the uranium enrichment systems of, of Iran. And we still don't have all the facts. We can't prove it, but we know that Stuxnet was developed by the NSA together with the Israeli intelligence as a cyber weapon to target the Iranian nuclear enrichment system successfully. They actually delayed the enrichment program by a year and a half or two years, maybe two and a half years, something like that. So it was a successful cyber weapon for the attackers. And it was completely different from anything we have seen. Like in our industry, we speak about time before Stuxnet and time after Stuxnet. And I spent the summer of 2010 completely with, with this project. I was reverse engineering the code, working with our team, trying to figure out what it does, because we kept finding new stuff. Um, it first got our attention because it was so big. It was like 100 times larger than normal malware at the time. Um, which made it completely unusual. And it, it was also the reason why it went undetected for so long. It didn't look like normal malware at all. It, it wasn't normal malware. It didn't look like normal malware. It didn't behave like normal malware. So all generic detections we had at the time completely missed it. And the way it, it um, gained access to the systems it was trying to infect is, is really indirect. Stuxnet is a Windows malware, which then drops um, Siemens S7 uh, SCADA systems ladder logic code. So the way your Windows box gets infected, oh. it's only through USB thumb drives. This doesn't spread over email or network drives or website. It doesn't spread over the internet at all. The reason why it doesn't spread over the internet at all is that mm. the attackers knew that the target systems in Iran were completely offline for security purposes. So it only spread on USB thumb drives. Mm. And the way they got Stuxent on the thumb drives of the Iranian nuclear researchers, we don't know. My best guess is that they broke into their homes in the middle of the night to find their thumb drives and infect their own USB drives and then put them back into their pockets and wait for them to carry their own thumb drives to the workplace. And one, when you in, install, when you insert a thumb drive infected by Stuxnet mm. onto a Windows computer, it used a zero-day, an exploit, um, which affected all versions of Windows at the time. Every single version of Windows, I, I believe starting from Windows 2000 all the way to Windows 7, which was the newest at the time, um, to gain access to the system. Mm. But it wouldn't do anything unless you had this very specific piece of software developed by Siemens running on your Windows computer. And this piece of software was used to program these S7 PLCs, which are the physical boxes that run inside factories controlling things like centrifuges. So if you would have this software, then it would wait for you to connect a Siemens S7 PLC box to your Windows computer with a USB cable, and then it would jump from your Windows computer to the PLC. And then it would wait for you to disconnect the PLC and bring it back to the factory floor. Then Stuxnet wouldn't do anything unless it find, found the right fingerprint, that this is the right factory. They knew beforehand the configuration that the Iranians were using 
in the nuclear enrichment systems that, that were in place. Oh, so wow. even if it would hit another factory, it wouldn't do anything at all. But when it found the right place, when it knew it, it was in the enrichment system built by Iranians, then it would start recording the network traffic for a day or two, and then it would start playing back the recorded network traffic to monitoring systems while it was modifying the real network traffic. And this is the equivalent to what you see in Hollywood movies where the heist is done by recording security camera footage and then playing it back while you're doing something else yeah. that the camera doesn't see. That's exactly what Stuxnet did. And what it did was that it changed the frequency of the centrifuges, which are spinning at huge speeds. And when you do that, you get these resonances which start breaking up these centrifuges. And they killed hundreds of centrifuges before Iranians figured out that you know this is done by a cyber weapon. This is not them being clumsy or them having poor quality parts, but it was actually done on purpose by the Americans and by the Israelis. Wow, it's fascinating. Uh, well, we're finishing, we are finishing the, uh, the interview now. In, in general, the, the book, although I've focused on maybe, you know, not the negatives, but, you know, malware, spyware, cyber war, which I think are interesting topics and very relevant these days, the, the book in general is a love letter to the internet and to some of the creations that human beings, especially in the last few years, in the last few decades, have come up mm -hmm. with, like, like Linux, for example, uh, to the many protocols that enable uh, the internet, to the people and the spirit that created it. So uh, with that in mind, what, what do you think, and actually this is the way you finish the book, uh, where do you think the internet well, is heading The internet to, has a bright uh, future ahead of itself. And, and we have to keep the perspective in mind. The mankind has walked this planet for 100,000 years offline, we got online now, during our time, but we will be online forever. And I see great beauty in the future of the internet. I'm, I'm an optimist, despite the fact that I worked for 31 years looking at the worst downsides of the internet and looking at all the new types of risks and new types of crime it has brought into our life. I believe there's much bigger upsides in the future of the internet. And I do see a future where we'll all have access to unlimited computing power. You look at how much faster and more effective and more memory the systems have gained over the last 30 years and then you imagine 30 years into the future and I do believe eventually we will all have access to unlimited computing storage, computing power, computing bandwidth for practically free. That's the future we're headed towards and that's a really powerful image because it changes the, the, or it poses oh, yes. the question to us coders and builders and designers which is what would you build if there would be no limits? And that's the future we're going towards. Thank you so much, uh, Mikko Hippanen. Where can anyone reach out to you should they uh, want to ask you any questions about this episode, about anything else? Where can they find you? Well, I'm active on Twitter, where my handle is Mikko, M-I-K-K-O. And you can also find me on my website, which is Mikko.com. Thanks so much. Take care, Mikko. Bye-bye. Thank you, Jordi. Bye-bye.